the book of Psalms. Uh, we're going to be starting uh, a summer series. Uh, having just finished up uh, the letter to Philemon, we're going to uh, be working our way through the Psalms this summer before jumping into uh, the Gospel of John in the fall. Uh, and uh, as you're turning there, on another note, since it's July 1st, uh, we have a new reading plan for our uh, our growth groups, and uh, it's a half sheet of paper uh, that's on the the front uh, table area. If you can grab that, we're going to be reading through Second uh, Corinthians uh, and uh, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, that'll be what we'll be looking at for the next uh, five weeks, and in August we'll jump back into uh, the Old Testament and read through Second Kings. Uh, so be sure uh, to. To read through those, and even though we're taking a break from our growth groups, and we won't be gathering together in those groups uh, during the week, but instead we'll be having uh, some picnics in the park and some barbecues in our neighborhoods. Uh, a, a break from growth group doesn't mean a break from reading the Word, being in prayer, uh, doing all of the the things that we encourage you to do in our small groups. We still would encourage you to get together and be praying for one another and with one another, uh, but it means that we're, we're taking a break from that during the summer. But continue uh, reading in the Word. So, uh, as you're as you're there in uh, in Psalm one, uh, the Psalter is a is an amazing book, uh, and I'm really excited to be able to to study it together with you. Uh, and as we think kind of in the in the context of church history, October 31st, 1517 is a very famous date in history, and we, we talked about it last fall at the, the 500th anniversary. That was the, the start of the Reformation, uh, October 31st, 1517. And many of us are familiar with that date uh, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, the castle church door uh, of Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, a date that we're less familiar with is actually August 16th, 1513, which is the day that Martin Luther began to lecture through uh, the book of Psalms. See, there, there were two books that were very influential upon Martin Luther. Now, the book of Romans, which prompted him to, to begin to say, hey, wait a second, that we're, we're justified by, by grace alone through faith alone. It's not something that we earn. It's something that God gives to us uh, in grace as he calls us to believe in his Son. But then also the, the book of Psalms uh, was was what gave Luther such tremendous courage. See, the book of Psalms exalts God to such a high and lofty position that it's able to to instill us with courage, to instill us with hope, even in dark times. Uh, and it is the, the book of Psalms that gave Luther the courage to stand against the world. In 1521, uh, four years later, after he nailed his little... Uh, ideas to that castle door. He was called before the emperor of Germany uh, at what's known as the the Diet of uh, Worms, or pronounced Worms. Uh, It's not a a new diet fad, but it's an an imperial diet. It's a a meeting where you come before the emperor. Uh, He he stood before the emperor. He stood uh, before the authorities of the Roman Catholic Church, and he said, I am bound by my conscience and the word of God. I can't deny what I have seen there. And it is the book of Psalms that that gave him that type of courage uh, and that type of hope because it lifted up God uh, and showed him who God was. And in the in the dark and difficult days that followed, it felt like it was Martin Luther against the world. And it only felt that way because it was that way for him. Uh, that's how difficult it was. And, and in the dark days of the Reformation, he and his friend uh, Philip Melanchthon, yeah, he would he would say to Philip, he'd say, Come, Philip, 
let us sing the Psalms. And what he did is he penned uh, some words that we sang this morning, a mighty fortress is our God, which was inspired by the, the psalm that we read, Psalm 46. Uh, and Luther turned uh, that uh, old Hebrew song into a, a contemporary version for himself to sing and, and glorify God to give him hope uh, in times when his life uh, was, uh, he was a wanted man. I uh, had to hide out in a in a castle for for many many months, uh, and Luther reflected upon the truth of that song, a mighty fortress. He says, "We sing this psalm because God is with us, and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends His church and His word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil." and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. See, Luther understood the Psalms. And as we open up this this book this morning, also known as the Psalter, we're coming to a, a collection of divinely inspired songs and, and prayers uh, and praises to God. That first hymn that we sung this morning, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus, and what do we what do we lose out on when we don't, bring everything to to God in prayer. That's what the Psalms are, a bringing of all of your thoughts and emotions, all of your pain, all of your struggles, bringing it to Almighty God and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. Help me to understand. It's crying out to God in the middle of those difficult situations. Uh, the, The book of Psalms is able to speak to every single human emotion. Now, one pastor, Steve Lawson, says that no matter where a person is in the Christian life, whether up or down, soaring or struggling, there is a psalm that speaks directly to the spiritual state of his heart. The primary purpose of the book of Psalms is found in its intensely God-centered focus to direct our hearts toward him in every experience of life. And the book of Psalms is one uh, that makes more and more sense the more life you live. Because as you go through life, you you suffer more. You experience more sin against you. You experience just uh, the consequences of living in, in a sin-stained world. Uh, and what you may have read as a young person, you come back to uh, years later, and suddenly that resonates within your soul because of what you have walked through in life. Psalms is an amazing book, and it, as I said, it lifts, it lifts up God. It presents God as the creator and owner of everything, but also as the one who, who took the time to knit us together when we were in our mother's womb. Psalm uh, shows that God is, is merciful and mighty. He's, he's holy and all-powerful, and yet he is also gracious and concerned with the lowly. He is a God who judges but also a God who extends grace and mercy. And and as we, we journey through the Psalms, not only this summer, but in, in the summers to come, I, I think it's going to just continue to speak loudly and profoundly in our lives and show us how we are to cry out to our Creator when we don't understand everything that's going on in our lives. Steve Lawson again says that, More than any other portion of scripture, the book of Psalms has influenced the public worship and private devotions of God's people through the centuries, leading them to seek him more diligently, to love him more deeply, and to trust him 
more fully. And ultimately, you could say that the Psalms teach us how to pray to and praise God as we wait for Jesus to return, as we await for the coming king. Uh, and that was what the Old Testament Israelites were writing about. They didn't realize that he was going to come twice, uh, but they were, they were waiting and anticipating the coming of their Messiah, and they're singing about that in this songbook. And if, if the individual Psalms are considered chapters, Psalms would be the longest book in the Bible, 150. Uh, it would also be uh, the one book that has the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, has 176 verses. And just to, for some perspective, we, we taught through Colossians, which had 95 verses. So this single chapter uh, in Psalms 119 uh, is longer, twi- almost twice as long as what we studied through Colossians. Uh, and it has the, the longest chapter in the Bible and also has the shortest chapter, uh, Psalm 117, which is two verses. Uh, it'll take you less time on your daily reading to read 117 than it will to take one to read through 119. Psalms is also the the Old Testament book that is most frequently quoted in the New Testament. So there are about 360 quotations or allusions by the New Testament authors pointing back to things in the Old Testament. And of those 360, approximately 112 are from the Psalms. Psalms also contains more prophecies about Jesus, the coming Messiah, than any other Old Testament book. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. The Psalter shows us that the Messiah will be the Son of God, the Son of Man. It shows us His obedience, His betrayal, His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, and ultimately His enthronement as the King of all kings. It was written by uh, various authors from from David, Moses, Solomon, uh, Asaph, the sons of Korah, and it was written over a period of about a thousand years. Psalm 90 is uh, the oldest psalm written by Moses, and Psalm 126 is the one, uh, the latest in history, uh, and it would have been possibly written after the return uh, of the Babylonian exile, uh, sometime after uh, 500 B.C. And uh, after all of these psalms were, were written, there came along an, an editor or an organizer. I don't mean that he came in and took uh, scissors and scotch tape and, and redid everything in terms of wh- how the psalms were written. What I mean by saying that there was an editor is that there was somebody who came and arranged these 150 songs written by the Hebrews and arranged them into a particular order. And that order is intended to communicate me- a message to us. Uh, and he arranged them in five five books in the Psalms. As you, as you read along, uh, each of the books also ends with a, a prayer, a doxology, a, a prayer glorifying God. And the, there's these five books, uh, Psalms 1 through 41 make up book 1, 42 to 72 make up book 2, 73 to 89 make up book 3, 90 to 106 make up book 4, and then 107 to 150. And each of those books has a particular theme, and it communicates a, a message to us. So whenever we come to a psalm, we have to first ask, why this psalm and why right here? What is God trying to tell us in putting this psalm right where he has it? And in the same way that a, a newspaper editor, think of what a newspaper editor does. They take all of these stories, hundreds of stories each day, uh, and they take what is most important, and, and the, the most important stories of the day, where do they go? Talk to me. Yeah, front page. Uh, and the most important on the front page, where do they go? They say, above the fold. So that when the newspaper is there folded, you see that immediately, and it catches your eye. 
Well, Psalms 1 and 2, you can think of it this way. Out of all of the 150 Psalms, this editor, this organizer of the Psalms said, hey, these are the ones that need to go above the fold. These are the ones that everybody needs to see and understand. This is the news of the day that if you don't understand the context of these uh, stories, you're not going to understand everything else in the newspaper. Uh, and that is where, what we, when we come to Psalms 1 and 2, we see that they form an introduction to the, through the book of Psalms. And if we don't understand the messages that they proclaim and what they teach us, we won't understand the whole book. Now, what they uh, introduce us to is what is going to be echoed throughout the entire Psalter. Uh, and in these two Psalms, what we're going to see is uh, that there are, in essence, two, two groups in Israel... Two groups in all of humanity. These two psalms divide humanity neatly into two categories. The first one would be those who receive their counsel from God and who look forward to the rule and reign of his son Jesus. That would be the first category. You look to to God and to his king as your authority. And the second group is going to be those who receive their counsel from the wicked and who reject Christ as the chosen king whom God has appointed. Those are the two categories of people that we will see in the Psalter. In in 150 uh, Psalms, that is what we are going to see echoed over and over again. And Psalm 1 is going to highlight this very, very clearly. In essence, it's going to, to lay out these two categories and say, which one are you in? It's going to point and emphasize, who do you belong to? Who do you follow? Who are you listening to? Are you among the congregation of the righteous? And and that question of, hey, are you among the congregation of the righteous, also implies a, a more serious question of where are you going? Not just in this life, but in eternity. And it's always amazing how uh, books of the Bible, we think we understand them a certain way. Psalm is going to introduce us to eternity right here in Psalm 1 of showing how we need to live in light of eternity uh, and how we uh, how we see ultimately two destinies. But that question of where are we going is, is one that we all have to answer this morning as we look at this psalm and we have to answer every day of our lives. And uh, if, as you have your, your outline there in your hands, so as we look at this uh, psalm, it's, it's six verses and each, uh, each two verses are going to show us something different. The first two verses, we're going to see two directions that you can take two paths so to speak and then in verses three and four we're going to see two descriptions of what you can be like depending upon which path you choose and each of those paths is going to lead to a destiny and that's what we're going to see in verses five and six two destinies that will come to pass with those two groups of humanity but let's let's look at verses one and two together and read Uh, about these two directions that the psalmist is going to introduce to us. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And what we see here, even from the very beginning, is that this is a wisdom psalm. It's trying to communicate some life lessons to us. It's going to give us uh, some practical guidelines for godly living, uh, for righteous living. Uh, And it begins with a beatitude. 
right? Those are famous statements of Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we see it here at the beginning of the songbook, that, that blessed is the man. And that idea of blessed is the idea of happy. That, th- that this is the person who is happy and, and blessed. And what is the world around us constantly pursuing? Happiness. They're constantly wanting to be happy. And, and here uh, in the Psalms, we're going to see, okay, this is, this is going to be a how-to guide. You want to be blessed, you want to be happy, content, joyful. This is what you need to do. And when it says, blessed is the man, the the man uh, is just indicative of, hey, this is what a godly person is, a representative of a godly person. And and notice what follows after that simple statement. Blessed is the man. Uh, He's going to, he's going to say what the, uh, what this blessed man does not do and then what he does. The, the distinguishing characteristics of the, the one who is going to be happy and blessed in this life is going to be defined by what he do, does and what he does not do. Let's look first at what he does not do. He says that he he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And the idea of of counsel uh, is who who do you get your counsel from? Who are you listening too. And, and the blessed man does not walk, does not carry out or follow the counsel of the wicked. And because whenever you listen to counsel and who you get your counsel from will determine your trajectory in life. You can think of it this way. Let's go back all the way to uh, creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world in six days. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had been living under the the care and the counsel of who up until that point? God. They had been walking with him, living with him in the garden. And then Genesis 3, along comes a different counselor. Suddenly there's a different voice and a conflicting voice where God said, hey, you can eat of everything and anything that you want, but there's one tree that I don't want you to eat from because if you eat from it, you're going to die. And then the serpent, who is Satan, the Satan. Uh, that serpent of old that we see in Revelation comes along and he questions and directly conflicts what God has said. So now Adam and Eve have a choice. There's two counselors, two opinions. Which one do they follow? And they ultimately, they, they choose to receive the counsel of Satan and reject the counsel of God with dramatic consequences, not just for their life, but for all of humanity. Again, the counsel that we listen to will set us on a trajectory. And it, ultimately, the counsel that we receive will uh, will determine our actions. And that's what we see next. So, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. So that, that idea of a, a way is a, the idea of a direction or points to, to actions. And in between our thinking and our actions are decisions. Right, we're going to choose to do something based upon the way that we have been thinking. Uh, and how we think will eventually culminate in our, our actions. And then once we, once we do an action, uh, any single action is the beginning of a, of a habit. Uh, of our character and uh, of our conduct, of the, our way and manner of life. And that is what we become known by. That is what begins to characterize us. How we think leads to how we act, and then how we act shows who we are. Proverbs 20, verse 11 says, Even a child 
makes himself known by his acts. Whether his conduct is pure and upright. So hey, even a, a little kid, you can know, according to their conduct, what's going on in their head, what they're thinking, what they're pursuing, what they're desiring. And he's saying, hey, the, the blessed man is not going to be the one who, who walks in, who heeds the counsel of the wicked. He's not going to be the one who, who follows in the way, who stands uh, in the way of sinners in that path. He's not going to be that person. And then this idea continues along of your, your thinking leads to your actions and then your actions lead to uh, your character and your conduct. And then your conduct, your character leads you to a sense of belonging somewhere. You're going to have a sense of belonging somewhere, and where is that going to be? Well, we see that in that last statement in verse 1. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. And that idea of uh, seat, that, that literally it's the word for dwelling place. Where, where is your home? Where, where do you take up residence? Again, where is your sense of belonging? Is your sense of belonging among uh, the wicked, the scoffers, the, the sinners, or is your sense of belonging with God and his people? Uh, and one thing will lead to another. You're thinking to actions, and your actions then to where you have your community, where you belong. And all of that it describes what, what the blessed man, what the, what the happy man does not do. He doesn't do all of those things. But what does he do? Well, there's a, a comparison and a contrast here. Verse 1 with verse 2. He doesn't do those things, but what does he do is this. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And this is what he delights in. The, the instruction of God. Literally, uh, the Torah. And the, the Torah, uh, it's the Hebrew word for instruction. And it refers to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, those are the books that you most uh, like and enjoy to read, right? Uh, but here the psalmist is saying, hey, this is what the, the righteous man will do. This is what the blessed man will do. He will take joy, satisfaction, pleasure in thinking about, meditating upon the instruction of God. That his delight is found in the word of God, and he's going to take it. He's going to meditate upon it. Day and night. He's going to always be thinking about God's instruction because as he thinks about God's instruction, he's going to understand himself better. He's going to understand who God is, who the world around him is. All of that is seen in God's word. And that idea of meditation, it's the idea of muttering to yourself, right? We all do that, especially if we don't want to forget something, right? If you... Let's let's move history back just in time a little bit before cell phones. Because now when we go to the store, what do we do? We write a, a list on our phone and so we don't forget anything. But before uh, smartphones, what did we have to do? We, we could write out a list, but what if we didn't take the time and energy to write out a list to go to the grocery store? What are we doing as we walk through the, the automatic doors? You know, we're, we're counting on our fingers. Okay, I need these three things, and those three things are. Uh, and then we get we got the first two things, and suddenly we can't remember the third thing, and we're like, oh man. So we're we're going through the store, and people are looking at us like we're crazy because we're just muttering to ourselves and we're counting and doing all of these things. But but that's the idea here. That's what uh, the blessed man does with God's word. He's always thinking about it, reciting it to himself, turning it over and over in his heart and in his mind, and dwelling upon the riches that are found. In the word of God. 
And all of this shows us that the happy man, the man who is truly blessed and satisfied in this life is somebody not who gets his counsel from the world, but who gets his counsel from and is constantly dwelling upon the counsel he receives from God's word. So the, so the blessed man is going to be somebody who is, you could say, countercultural, right? Because if those are the two different sources of, of counsel, uh, they go in different directions, right? If, if you're going to walk in the counsel of the wicked, you're going to be going right along with the mainstream of humanity. You're going to be going in the same direction as everybody else. But as soon as you, you stop walking along with everybody else and you begin to walk in the opposite direction, what happens? You bump into people. People notice you're going upstream and, and it's difficult. But again, this is where happiness is found, not in, in going along with everybody else uh, according to the counsel of the wicked, but but going according to the counsel of God's word. This same idea is echoed multiple places in the New Testament, but think of Romans 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what is stated in the New Testament is clearly stated in the Old Testament as well. Hey, don't be conformed to the world. Be constantly muttering to yourself, meditating upon God's word, upon his truth. And the happy and blessed man is the one who is, you could say, preoccupied with the word of God. His joy is found in the Lord, not in the world. And a preoccupation with God's word results in happiness with joy and think about that we don't usually equate those two things that being preoccupied with god his character his word his people is what's going to bring satisfaction to our lives ultimately we think that the things of this world will satisfy us but usually how does that work out not very well so we have to ask what is it that we are usually preoccupied with what are we deeply engrossed in? What is it that when we have that uh, free second throughout our day that our mind wanders to that? That is what we're preoccupied with. That's what we are deeply engrossed in. And if you just think about it for a second, when whatever you gravitate to, when, when you're pursuing that thing, whatever it is you're preoccupied with, how do you feel in the midst of pursuing it? And then how do you feel after you've already obtained it, after you've pursued it? kind of the, the in the middle of that pursuit and after it. Oftentimes the things that we pursue, we finally get them. And what do we find? Doesn't satisfy. Like, I thought this would be a lot better. Uh, and just that that idea of we, we pursue all of these things that won't truly satisfy us, but God and his word will. Because he's an infinite God. But our desires, they're also infinite, right? <laughs> but our resources, our time, our energy, those are finite. The only thing that can satisfy our infinite desires is an infinite and glorious God. And that's what Psalms presents to us. I know that there are a hundred things in your life crying out for your time constantly. Every day, wanting your attention, battling for your thoughts, your energy. And, And we need to make sure that the Word of God is one of those things that's battling for our times. And not only battling for our times, but winning the battle for our time that we are dedicated to to reading it 
to memorizing it, to meditating upon it so that we are hiding it in our heart. Because being preoccupied with the things of the world, it doesn't lead to, to blessedness and happiness. It usually leads to, to darkness and depression. Uh, again, if we, we live in the most affluent society that the world has ever known. There's never been a richer country than 21st century America. But what is on the rise right now in our nation? Depression. Suicide. You know, uh, euthanasia, where people uh, want to go and, and control their death on their terms, and it's the same as suicide. Uh, and just understanding this is what affluence brings. We've obtained everything that we've wanted. We, we, we are so stinking rich and wealthy, and yet we are not happy. We are not satisfied. We need to identify what we have become preoccupied with. We need to identify where the most influential counsel in our life is coming from. We've got to say, hey, this is what influences me the most. What, what, is, what, what voice is speaking to me so often and influencing my thoughts, my thinking? And oftentimes, uh, it's that little screen that you're carrying around with you all the time or the one sitting in your living room, right? And think about that. That's, a, that's really like a one-way discipleship device. And it's discipling you. Uh, it's, it's calling to you and teaching you how to think and teaching your children how to think. It's discipling them. We, we need to, to understand that and be aware of that. We need to identify what we're preoccupied with, who we're getting counsel from, and where we tend to feel that we belong. Where is our sense of belonging? Is it with God and his people or is it somewhere else? And then we, once we've identified these things, we need to evaluate them. And honestly assess through the lens of Scripture. Say, hey, is this helping me or hurting me? Is this leading to joy, satisfaction, blessedness? Or is this leading to to dissatisfaction, depression, discouragement? And if they are, if they are of the world, we need to forsake them. We need to turn from them. Because again, this is what marks the blessed happy man, the righteous man. The blessed uh, in verse 1 is also the righteous in verse 6. So we need to understand that. And the, those who are righteous, those who are blessed, are not going to be pursuing those things. They're not going to be doing verse 1. They're going to be doing verse 2. Those are the, the two directions that are laid out in this psalm. And it's only one or the other. There's no like middle path where I can sometimes go to this path and sometimes go to this path. We like to think of that. And, and I like a, a middle path. It's like, well, no, there's there's just two here. Uh the one who's blessed and the one who's not. The one who's righteous and the one who is wicked. And we need to see that. Uh, so the psalmist gives us these two directions and then describes uh, what these, what's going to happen if you, depending on what direction you choose. Uh, we see two descriptions in verses 3 and 4. He says, He, speaking of the blessed man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So he, he paints quite a picture here. He says, he, uh, the righteous, the blessed man, look at how he is characterized. He has stability. He's planted. He has vitality, meaning that he has he is strong and active. He, he has vitality because where is he planted? By Streams of water. What do trees need to live? Water. He's also productive. He bears fruit. He's durable. 
his leaf does not wither. Meaning, hey, even when, when there's bouts of, of drought, when there's not that much water left, what is this person, what is this tree, what does this person still do? He still thrives. And then fifthly, he is prosperous. Then all that he does, he prospers. It's not always like this for the righteous because it doesn't take too much longer in Psalms to see that the righteous suffer. And Psalms is going to address that. It's not always easy. Sometimes it feels like we are a tree planted in a desert and we're dying. Say, God, what's going on here? And we cry out to him. But here, what is generally true is presented to us. That generally speaking, those who are following the Lord, meditating upon his word, not uh, walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers, they will be like a tree firmly planted. And compare this firmly firmly planted and healthy tree with verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. There, There is a difference in these paths. There's a different result that comes in this life. And he speaks of the wicked being like chaff. And some of us may be like, what is chaff? What is that? Well, uh, farming techniques, uh, that were used way before the 1900s. The wheat uh, would be harvested, meaning that it would be cut down. Then it would be threshed, meaning it would be taken and crushed. So take all this wheat that they've cut, gather it in, crush it with this millstone, and then all of this would be on the ground, on the floor of the of the threshing uh, house. And what it would do, that crushing of the grain, would loosen what was edible from what was inedible. You take, hey, I can eat this, I can't eat this. And then they would take what was been what had been crushed and they would throw it up into the air. And that was known as winnowing. Okay, so they take what's uh what's crushed, throw it up into the air, uh, and that inedible portion, the chaff, separates from the edible portion, the grain. So they throw it up and the grain falls back down. But the chaff is so light that this even the slightest breeze will take that chaff that's inedible and blow it away. So, so think of what is what is being compared and contrasted here. The, the righteous, the, the blessed man who follows the Lord is going to be like this tree anchored down. He's not going anywhere. But the chaff are, are like the slightest breeze will blow them away and take them away. And that is ultimately what we see. Where does the counsel of Satan lead? It leads to being blown away. Blown anywhere the wind will take you. That is what the counsel of the world will do. The counsel of Satan. And let's, let's visualize this just for a, for a second. If you've ever driven into the Treasure Valley, whether it would be from uh, the Twin Falls area, what is that, the Magic Valley? Uh, Magic Valley area. What color is the Magic Valley? Nothing against that that area, but what, what color is it, generally speaking? <laughs> Khaki. It's a, it's a very diplomatic way of saying brown. Yeah, uh, it, it's brown. And I remember uh, driving up, uh, we, we initially moved here, and we drove through Salt Lake City, uh, and we saw a lot of tumbleweeds blowing through that portion of Idaho. Uh, and it's amazing when you when you suddenly come into the the Treasure Valley and you kind of hit uh, the outskirts of Boise. What begins to change? Yeah, it begins to look green. And, and what does Boise's name mean? Hey, 
city of trees, right? Uh, and and so if, you, if you're coming in this landscape of, of barrenness, it's kind of like that moon landscape, and suddenly there's trees, what do you know is there? Where there's trees, where there's greenery, what else is there? Water. Exactly. Uh, and that water is what gives life to those trees. Uh, and, and suddenly you come to uh, this greenery, and again, just comparing that, that tumbleweed to that, to that tree. And that idea of when you come, where, where do you want to go and be refreshed? In the desert, in the wilderness, with the wicked who are like chaff, or where you want to go be with God's people? And that's ultimately, I think, what the church should be. Right, if if the church is made up of those who are anchored uh, to the fountain of living water, Jesus Christ, uh, and we are steadfast, immovable, healthy, uh, prosperous in all that we do, because we're anchored to, uh, we're planted by streams of living water. The church should be like coming from the Magic Valley into the Treasure Valley, where suddenly it, it's a, a breath of fresh air. It's it's a burst. It's a, that change in temperature. Suddenly it's cooler because. Uh, the ground's not just reflecting the heat everywhere. That's what we what we should strive to be like as individuals and as churches. And if you're here, and sometimes we realize, hey, I've been at that tumbleweed. I've been that that chaff being driven every which way. And then suddenly, I, I think I, I think I like that idea of being a tree firmly planted. If you if you turn with me just over to the right in your Bible, just a a few pages, and you look at the. The, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17. So even before the, the Psalter was organized in this way, the Psalms were still there with the Hebrew people. And I think it's clear because I think in Jeremiah 17, I think he's going to allude to Psalm 1. I think he's going to point to it and say, hey, this concept is, is true. Look with me, Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 5. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and will not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. And it leaves, and its, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Again, this same idea. There's two paths, two directions. Uh, the psalmist says, hey, the one who who identifies and, and takes the counsel of the wicked is on one direction, and the one who meditates on God's word is going another direction. What does Jeremiah do? He makes the same two categories, but what does he, what does he call them? How does he identify them? He says, there's one who trusts in man. And whose trust is man. And then there's one whose trust is the Lord. And again, he uses the same description. Hey, you like that tumbleweed? Or are you like that tree? And he points to 
the deceitfulness. Why do, why do people turn to the way of man? Why do they put their trust in man? Well, we see that in verses 9 and 10. Because what does Jeremiah say about our hearts? We're, we're deceived. The heart is deceitful, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he answers his own question. Who understands the human heart? God. That's why we need to read his word. If you want to understand your heart better, who should you look to? God. He, he, how can you understand your own heart? You don't even fully understand your own motives. But God does. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. If you want to know yourself better, if you want to know the world better, look to God's word and understand the idea, these ideas are synonymous of dwelling upon God's word, meditating upon his, upon his word and trusting ultimately in him. And the opposite direction, the opposite path is to trust in man, whether that's yourself, your own wisdom or in the wisdom of others. As we turn back to to Psalm 1, we, we, we got to see these two descriptions. And if, if we're honest, I don't think anybody here would raise their hand and say, hey, I want to be that chaff, right? No one's like, I, I want to be that, where the slightest breeze just takes me away. But oftentimes, as we look at our lives, we may not want to be that, but some of us are that. And we see that suddenly anything that, that happens, anything that takes place in our life, and it's we're just blown into chaos, and some of that is because we haven't anchored ourselves to God and His Word. And so some of it, which, which do we want to be and then which one are we? If we just look at our lives, am I driven every which way or am I firmly planted? And what is the prescription for being driven every which way? Well, it's by coming, forsaking our trust in man, man's wisdom, ourselves, or other people, and beginning to trust in the Lord, in His ways. Even if they don't make sense, even if we don't fully understand, but trusting in Him and what He is calling us to do. So we see these two directions, we see these two descriptions, and then ultimately in verses 5 and 6, we see two destinies. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 together. It says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, in these last two verses, and what we, what we see is the final judgment. When it says in verse 5 that the, the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, it means the judgment, the final judgment, when we will all stand before God and give an account. We see this in Revelation 20. Uh, we see this for believers when we come and stand before Christ for rewards in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we will stand before God. And, and what statement is being made that the wicked won't stand at that point in time, that he won't be able to survive that judgment. And notice what the wicked does not have at that time. Uh, the wicked will not have any justification before a holy judge. And he won't have any community with the righteous. He can't say, hey, I've been in and among the righteous. I've been with God's people. No, he's been going his own way. And ultimately, the the wicked at that final judgment will have no hope. 
And this is also where we need to, to put ourselves back into the sandals of the psalmist. Who is this originally written to? Israel. Right? And, and Israel is God's people. So what is the psalmist saying to God's people? There's some of you here that are not right. There are some of you here of among God's people who aren't walking with him. Among God's chosen people, he's saying, hey, there's wicked among us and they need to, to turn. They need to understand the destiny that awaits them, even if they're among those in Israel. They need to turn to God and live according to his ways, looking to him in faith. And and Jesus is going to say something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of simply just uh, being in and among God's people, the congregation, whether it's Israel, whether it's the church, doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, are walking according to the Lord's ways. It doesn't mean that you have uh, just somehow through osmosis been uh, planted and have a relationship with the Lord. We need to understand that David, probably who wrote this psalm, was calling out Israel and Jesus calls out the church. We all need to examine ourselves. There's a personal accountability in this psalm and in all of the psalms. And we need to contrast the the hopelessness of the wicked at that final judgment. But look at verse 6. It says that, or at the end of verse 5, that the, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And that idea of the Lord knowing is a, it's a, it's a word that points to a continual action. It's the emphasis of God always knows the, the ways of the righteous and is intimately acquainted with them. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're doing. But contrast that to the wicked. They will perish. God is always aware of his people and what they're doing, but the wicked will will perish and and this thought of our of our final judgment before a holy god should always strike a note of sobriety to our hearts and i think it's something that we need to pay more attention to and dwell upon more it's not a fun topic to think about that final judgment of when i have to stand face to face with jesus christ with a holy god but we will all have to one day give an account to him uh, Philip the the third, the king of Spain, uh, and he lived a life that was it was free of really serious sins, and uh, he he one time professed that he would rather lose his kingdom than offend God willingly. And so he was a man who who pursued God, and yet just before his death, while more thoroughly considering the account that he was just about to have to give to God, he said this. He says, "Oh." Would to God that I had never reigned. Oh, that those years that I have spent in my kingdom, I had lived a solitary life in the wilderness. Oh, that I had lived a solitary life with God. How much more securely should I now have died? How much more confidently should I have gone to the throne of God? 
that does all my glory profit me, but that I have so much the more torment in my death of saying, I'm concerned of giving that account. Even though he had pursued the Lord, he suddenly began to see all of the ways that he hadn't. He began to regret even reigning. He said, I would have rather lived in the desert with the Lord than, than reigned in Spain and ruled over that country. He thought deeply and seriously about what it was going to be like to stand before God. And we need to do the same. We need to think about that. There is no more important question than how will you survive the final judgment? How will you stand before God at the end of your life? Or at the end of time, should he come before we perish? But if the righteous are the ones who survive the final judgment, then the the question the place before us is, well, how do I become one of the righteous? And the answer is not try harder. <laughs> do more. Okay? Memorize the entire Bible. That's not the, the takeaway from Psalm 1. Well, he said the righteous memorize and meditate. Like, yes, that's true. Uh, but the answer is not just try harder, do more. The answer is not found in yourself. The answer is to look to Christ. You say, Pastor Thomas, now... I think you're going beyond what was said in Psalm 1, right? We didn't see anything about Jesus. We didn't see anything about looking to him in faith in Psalm 1, did we? But remember, what two Psalms are on the front page of the Psalm book? Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Look at me at the, with the end of Psalm 2. We're going to look at Psalm 2 next week. Here's a little bit of a spoiler alert. Psalm 1 began with a beatitude. It says, blessed is the man... What does Psalm 2 end with? Another beatitude. It says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Well, who is Him? It's always a safe question to ask. Well, just look at the beginning of verse 12. What does the psalmist tell us to do? It tells us to, to kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, because the Son is the one that God the Father in heaven has given the earth to. And we need to pay homage to him. The psalmist says in verses, in Psalms 1 and 2, hey, you need to be uh, pursuing the Lord, walking in his ways, and look to the Son. Pay homage to him. Blessed is the man who looks to him in faith and takes shelter and protection in the Son. Now this morning we've we've seen these these two directions, these, these two descriptions, and ultimately these two destinies, and they just prompt the simple questions of, hey, what direction have I chosen? Which of these best describes me? And then what, what destiny, me, destiny am I on right now? What's my trajectory in life? And it's laid out here, not so we just say, well, that's my trajectory, and that is, that's it for me. There's no hope now. That's it. No, the, the, the reason these two are laid out so that all of those who are walking in the counsel of the wicked, and by default, all of us as humans, where, where, what are we, what path are we on? That path. Walking away from God and walking in the counsel of the wicked, this is given us so that we leave that path and turn to the other one, that we turn to Christ in faith, that we look to Him, trusting in Him, seeking refuge in Him. That is what we are all called to do. That is the right response to this. And if we're already walking in that path, the Psalms are here to encourage us in it because it's going to be difficult at times. 
And uh, if we want to be that true, that tree that is immovable, what do we need to do? Meditate upon his word. Never be satisfied with where you are in your walk with Christ, but continue to pursue him, always wanting more, always walking in faith. That is what Psalm 1 shows us, that there are two directions, two descriptions, and ultimately two destinies for all of humanity. And we need to know where we are going. Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, you are so gracious and so kind to us. Lord, we have all been in rebellion against you. We have all walked in the counsel of the wicked and stood in the way of sinners and sat, dwelled with the scoffers. Lord, we have been among them. But Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, for giving us your word, for teaching us your ways by the power of your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk before you in faith, not trying to earn our righteousness, but simply looking to Jesus in faith. He earned our righteousness by dying on the cross. His life has been attributed to us in faith and our sin has been attributed to him in faith and we thank you and praise you for that lord if there are some here that have not sought refuge in the son if they are continuing to to wander from you lord i just pray that you would just work upon their hearts that you would draw them to yourself help them to to leave the path of sinners and then begin to walk the path of the righteous, to pursue you in faith. And Lord, I pray that just as Christians, as a church, that we would be a group of trees firmly planted by a running stream, or that we would be a refuge to our community. May the community look to us and say, hey, what's different there? Why are they not being blown away as chaff? Why are they not being blown across the state of Idaho as tumbleweeds? Why are they so firmly rooted and planted that no matter what comes into our lives, we exhibit trust in you? Not in ourselves, not in man, but firmly trusting in you and your word. Lord, may you continue to to build us up as a church, to sanctify us as individuals, and ultimately to glorify your name in us and through us. We ask this in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen.